This story starts with a shoebox. Once it was new, carried a fresh pair of Nikes. But now that long swoosh has faded and the box is empty. There's nothing inside but hope, magic, alchemy, and a list of songs handwritten on a page ripped out of a notebook. In the 90s, Houston hip hop heads would come from far and wide to find this box. They'd pull up, lift the lid, and drop off their list of jams. Lists like this. Side one, Ice Cube, true to the game. Nas, one love, Tupac. This is how it started. How some of the most legendary mixtapes in hip hop came to be. Lists ripped out of a composition book and left inside a shoebox, like something put out for the Tooth Fairy. About two weeks after you dropped off your list, your pager would buzz. It was time to collect. So you'd pay your 10 bucks and now you had it in your hands. A tape that's been chopped and screwed. But here's the thing about these tapes. They weren't regular mixtapes. It was like that shoebox was a magical portal because even though you chose the songs, what you got back was something entirely different. Something that would test your speakers and blow your mind. So you jot down cocktails by Too Short on your list. But this is what you get back. It wasn't hip hop the way you were used to hearing it. The music that spilled out from your tape deck was slowed down, slowed way down. Slowing it down was a simple alteration, but the effect was anything but. These tapes felt like syrup dripping out of your speakers. With the bass so heavy, it could crack concrete, and the rapper's vocals were slowed down and distorted, like they were coming from another dimension. Hip-hop had never sounded like this before. This shit felt psychedelic. In the 90s in Houston, these tapes were so popular that they were collected and traded like Pokemon. And the artists who appeared on them became hood legends. You've probably heard of some of them. Fat Pat, Hawk, Youngster, Little Flip, Zero, Big Mo, and Little Kiki. But the slowed down style didn't stay local for long. It spread in a crawl. The drawl of these long, languid beats working their way out across Houston, showing up in other artists' work from the South Side to the north side. Then they went nationwide and international, from gray cassette tapes to digital streams. Travis Scott chopped and screwed his music. So did Drake. And so did the biggest star of all, the queen of pop, Beyonce. I've been all, I've been all, I've been all. Tell me who gon' take me off. You have heard this music, I promise you. But the man behind the beats, there's every chance that you know nothing about him. His name was DJ Screw, and he's one of hip-hop's greatest enigmas. A Wizard of Oz-type figure hidden behind a wall of sound. Even in Houston, where he lived for most of his life, he was a ghost. Like Most people wouldn't even know who DJ Screw was if he was standing right next to him. So you had to even know who Screw was to know who Screw was. 
He's like the ruler of the underworld. Yeah, it was like he was like a mystery. Who in the fuck from the police to feds to everybody wondering who is this man? Yeah, he was like a mystery. He fucking right. DJ Screw dedicated his life to the pursuit of slowness. He wanted you to be able to appreciate every beat, every bar, every syllable. For this shit to be so slow that you could see inside his songs. He worked endlessly to bend music to his will and create a new world through sound. A world laced with references to candy-colored slabs, Houston slang, and cups of drink. But this world that Screw created, and his commitment to his art, eventually, it consumed him. It, I, ain't never, I ain't never seen him rest. Be honest with you, I never saw him rest. And then, it destroyed him. They always wanted to make sure it was something in his cup. And I'll, well, let's not get into that. DJ Screw died when he was just 29 years old, and he never got the chance to tell his own story. It's the story of a kid from the country who built an empire off $10 mixtapes, put his city on the map, and changed hip-hop forever. My name is Brandon Jenkins, and on this season of Mogul, we're slowing things down and telling the story of DJ Screw. Smithville, Texas is a city, but in the loosest sense of the word. Less than 5,000 people live here. There's a few churches, a high school, and a Dairy Queen. Talk to locals and they'll tell you. It's the country. And this is where DJ Screw grew up in the 1970s. You know, um, Hope Floats was shot there. I mean, that's kind of like the, the biggest theme I can give you. But, you know, we're still just that little old country town that's... Um, it's kind of a place where when you get ready to retire, that's where you need to go. This is Michelle Wheeler, Screw's older sister. Screw lived with Michelle and his mother, Ida Mae. Not that either of them called him Screw. He was Robert Earl Davis Jr. to his family. When he wasn't home, Screw spent his time hanging out with his best friends, a kid named Larry and a kid named Shorty Mac. It, we had a bond back then like no, like no other, man. That's Shorty Mac. Shorty told me that all three of the boys loved music, and they all had their own boomboxes. Screw boombox was the loudest. Larry boombox was the one that had two cassettes. So you could play one cassette and record the other cassette. So that's how we exchanged music. We listened to a lot of, it was a lot of hip hop, like New York hip hop, uh, Five Minutes of Funk. Houdini, UTFO. These are some of the things that we are, are walking down the street listening to, uh, walking to the basketball courts. The way Shorty Mac tells it, the three boys were like the Pied Pipers of Smithville. They'd stroll down the street, three skinny kids in jorts and ball caps, and they'd blast their boomboxes, filling the country air with the sounds of New York hip hop and the other neighborhood kids would stop what they were doing and follow them. But we was like, we was like the party, I guess you would say. We, wherever we was going, we was bringing the party with us. 
we jamming and 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 you might it might be ten of us walking and thirty other kids on bicycles and just a crowd of people coming down the street. Pretty soon, the three boys were trying to emulate what they were hearing from the early New York hip hop scene. They practiced spitting rhymes and beatboxing and breakdancing. Up until this point, everything Screw knew about hip hop came from what he had heard. He learned about this stuff from the radio. But things really changed when DJ Screw first saw hip hop on the big screen. What caught Screw out to DJing was the movie Breaking. His mom uh, actually took me and him to see Breaking. Breaking is a story about a classically trained jazz dancer who discovers the world of breakdancing. It's basically Save the Last Dance, but set in the 1980s and with a shitload more spandex. Screw had been begging his mom to take him and Shorty Mac. And finally, after weeks of chores, she agreed to take him. Break in and you just don't stop. Here comes the movie that's fresh and hot with high energy. Dancing to the beat with a scratch mix sound that comes from the street. This movie is it's like battle rapping, but dancing. A dance type style. People spin on their head, spin on their back. You've got the talent. She ain't no street dancer. That was actual sound from the movie. Breakin's got a score of 33% on Rotten Tomatoes. And to modern audiences, it seems outrageously corny. But Screw and Shorty Mac were enthralled. For them, it was the first time they'd seen any of this stuff. And here it was, in Technicolor, on a massive screen. Looking at death, man. Come on, sucker, right now. So in Breaking, the dancers are really the star of the show. But there was something else that grabbed Screw's attention. Something that would change his perspective entirely. Because for him, the main attraction wasn't the dancers. It was the DJ. The DJ in the movie is played by Chris Taylor, also known as The Glove. There's all these close-up shots of Taylor's hands skillfully cutting up records. I really think the way his hands was moving and the way he was scratching and, and doing this and doing that, that's what caught Screw Eye. True to his name, and the fact that this is the 1980s, the glove does all this while wearing a pair of fingerless leather gloves, bedazzled with metal studs. And now, Screw is hooked. Don't be mistaken, you've got to see Breaking. Oh my God, he loved that movie. <laughs> I, when he went to see that movie, um, you know, that was that was his moment. That was his, when he saw that, it was like, it's on now, you know. <laughs> after, when we came out the movie, uh, me and Screw was standing there, and he said, man, I can do that. I'm talking about what that DJ was doing. So I said, you think so? He said, yeah, I think so. But emulating his new hero from breaking wasn't going to be that simple. See, there's a barrier to entry when you want to be a DJ. You need equipment, and Screw didn't have any. And his mom wasn't about to buy him any new gear. She was a single mother holding it down by working three jobs at a time. If Screw was going to be like the DJ from Breaking, he'd have to get creative. So he started with the stuff that he could get his hands on. His mother's old record player and his boombox. He connected those to another record player he borrowed from a friend. And now he had his first DJ rig. Once he was set up, Screw's sister Michelle remembers music taking over his life and his bedroom. 
So, Screw's room was a room that had no bed because Screw didn't want a bed. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't want a bed. Um, <laughs> he didn't, you know, he, don't get me wrong, he started out with one. Uh, but then when he started with makeshift turntables and boom boxes and my mama's records, that kind of all changed. Everything he did, he was on the floor. You know, everything, it was records, is, is what he had. And sometimes I would get so mad at him because our rooms were like next to each other. And it didn't matter who heard the music, he didn't care as long as he could hear it. <laughs> um, but and that's how he was, and you know, I would go in there, you know, screw, you need to turn this down. Well, at that time, we didn't call him screw; I called him Earl. Uh, you need to turn this down, um, and he turned it down just, 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 not even a hair. It's like you didn't even touch it. My mother and I, we learned to live with it. Well, especially me. My mother knew he had this this knack for music and she just let him have his way you know so Michelle told me that as Screw started to get heavier into music he was staying inside more you wouldn't find him walking up and down the street blasting his boombox or playing baseball or basketball with kids from the neighborhood he was retreating deeper and deeper into a world of sound and Screw started to get a reputation among folks in Smithville as something of a recluse if they had to describe him, um, it probably would be a child that was very rarely seen. Because Screw was not one of those that always wanted to go outside and play. Screw always was in the house messing up my mama's records. <laughs> so. The young Screw was growing more and more devoted to music. And he was also forming strong opinions on what he did and did not like. In a way, that's how he got his name. Nicknames are a funny thing. A given name that can be based on anything. Your appearance, the way you talk, where you're from, even a flip of your actual name. Sometimes they're good, sometimes they're bad. And they almost always follow you your entire life. I knew this one guy named Smurf, another guy named Chops, a dude named Gator, one named Cheese, Cook Up, Pistol Pete. I even knew a kid named Dad. <laughs> Pistol Pete. Oh, man, Pistol, Pistol P was a bad motherfucker. All right, anyways, um, that's the thing with nicknames. There's really no rules. Well, except one. You can't give yourself your own nickname. It was that way with Screw, too. Well, we would go, and, like, if I brought some records, or my partner brought some records, or Screw went and got some records, he would always listen to them before he played them. He didn't like the record, He'll take the record off. He had a screw sitting right there by his turntables. He would grab his screw and start scratching the records up. Okay, so just so you're getting a clear visual here, he's taking the sharp metal point of a screw and dragging it across the record so the vinyl is completely destroyed. He's totally fucking these records up. He scratched it so nobody else would be able to play it ever again. So he just didn't scratch it in one spot. That whole record gets scratched up. He go around in a circle and scratch that whole record up so nobody could ever play it again. I looked at him. I said, man, what you doing? He said, man, I don't like this. I just don't like this. I said, man, and he studied scratching the record. I said, well, who you think you are, DJ Screw or something? And we all just bust out laughing. And he looked at me and said, 
I like that, man. I like that. That's what my name going to be, DJ Screw. After he got the name, Michelle remembers seeing her brother destroy parts of her mother's record collection. He'd pretty much fuck up anything he wasn't vibing with. I don't think he liked the Midnight Train of Georgia. I'd rather live in his world. Um. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of, I'm like, Midnight Train of Georgia, that's a classic, but he scratched it, it up. It is, though. But, you know, Screw was, he, it, it had to have a certain beat for him. DJ Screw was in middle school when he got the name, and he grew into it in the years that followed. He destroyed more records for sure, but also he took the time to master the fundamentals, blending, crossfading, and scratching. The boys were too young to hit the club scene back then, so they made Screw's bedroom into their own spot. We had two like little neon lights that we used to have in there, and we would turn the lights off, so it would be like we had a club or something, and he would be DJing. So we brought all these records and everybody brought some records. Whoever came over there brought records with them. If you pass by on the street back then, you might not hear hip hop spilling out of Screw's window. His record of choice for those long early DJ sets came from the 70s pop group, Fleetwood Mac. Like he might mix rumors for 30 minutes. And every time he mixed it, he mixed it a different way. One night when the boys were around 17, Shorty Mac went over to Screw's house to go hang out. They sat in Screw's bedroom under the glow of Screw's neon lights, vibing to the records they fucked with, vandalizing the ones they didn't. And they bullshitted and cracked jokes and talked about their dreams to form a famous rap crew and travel the world together. We had a beautiful time that night. I, I, I never forget, man. We, I, I probably went home at like three in the morning. So then... When I wake up the next day, I wait till 12 o'clock and I run over there. I just want to run over there to uh, tell him how much fun we had last night. When Shorty got to Screw's house, his mother answered the door. And the first thing that came out of her mouth was, baby, Screw moved to Houston. It felt like my heart kind of like just fell out of my, uh, out of my body. And I turned around, looked at it, and I said, so he ain't coming back? And she was like, no, baby, he went to go live with his daddy. Screw's old man and his mom separated when he was just a kid, and he'd sometimes spend the summers with him. But after Robert Earl Davis Sr. couldn't afford to make his child support payments, Screw's parents decided the best solution was for Screw to go and live with his father, permanently. When Screw left for Houston that day, he had to leave behind everything he knew. Smithville, his best friends, his mom, and his sister. It wasn't just his zip code. The move to Houston changed everything for Screw. It changed his musical influences, the way he DJed, and it changed his life. Because in Houston, DJ Screw discovers slowness. Coming up after the break, Screw finds his sound. DJ Screw was still a teenager when he moved to Houston in the late 80s, and he'd have to get used to some big changes. 
First, there was the size. He grew up in Smithville. Total population, less than 5,000. Now he was in a city of almost 4 million. And for a kid who had started to immerse himself in a world of sound, there'd be big sonic changes too. Sounds of the country, screen doors and insects and nature, giving way to traffic and honking. And on a lot of corners back in those days, freestyling. Freestyling was just, freestyling was some stuff that just really originated on the block, man, you know. This is Big Pokey. He'd go on to become one of Screw's key collaborators. But back in the day, he was just spitting on the corner. Somebody might be playing some music and you rapping over the lyrics. You know what I'm saying? Somebody just come in, just rapping. It's just, you know, really all in fun, man. You just rapping, talking about what's going on. Pokey told me that seeing a bunch of dudes freestyling on the block was just as common as catching a game of pickup basketball. It was part of everyday life. The freestyle culture in Houston was very big. This is Little O, another rapper on the block. Even if you couldn't rap worth shit, that's just <laughs> what we did. We got fucked up, we smoked weed, drank a lot of codeine, and we were just ride around freestyling. Just what it was, just, just something we did. Screw would go on to work with both of these guys, and they'd all play a part in redefining Houston's sonic landscape. But when Screw first moved to the city, he found himself alone. He was miles away from his best friend Shorty Mac, his big sister Michelle, and his mom. Now it was just him and his father, Robert Earl Davis Sr. He had tough love on Screw, I can tell you that. When you say it, tough love, what you mean? Like he would he would leave, like he may he like he drove trucks, so he'd be on the road. So he may go buy a box of chicken and that that uh chicken had to last screw all week until he got back. And like a whole box of church's chicken. So he had to plan it out or he didn't like, I don't know how much, I don't think he had a lot of, uh, a lot of trust in screw DJ in that first season. Cause he's always telling me he need to go get a job. Um, that DJ wasn't going to pay off for him. But screw ignored his father and kept focusing on his music. And that's how he started to connect with other people in the city. First of all, I'm DJ Chill, Mr. Ira in the Street. My relationship with school is like, you know, it's like my best friend. Like we shared, um, you know, shared a lot of together, a lot of things together. So uh, how we, how I met him, um, you just want me to go to that? DJ Chill was introduced to Screw when one of Chill's friends heard about this new kid from the country who was a really great DJ. Around that time, Chu was just starting out as a DJ himself, and he wanted to see if this guy could teach him some new tricks. So when I went, the first time I went over to meet him, he was, uh, he stayed off of Quail Meadows. So that's like Southeast Houston, um, right down Telephone Road. I'm trying to like give you a picture of where it was. Southeast Houston is um, like South Park area, but a little bit farther down. So, so when you come in the apartment, you got the couch right there in the living room. Then you go down the hallway, and the next room would be his room where there is nothing but records, record, 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 record crates everywhere. There was no bed. The only bed in that apartment was the one in his pop's room. 
How did he introduce himself back then? Was he Robert or was he DJ Screw by then? He was DJ Screw. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of funny because like when you say it, when you introduce him to other people, they'd be like, huh? <laughs> like, screw. <laughs> yeah, and me and my, my sisters and and cousins and people like that, they was like, they ain't, they wasn't even accepting the, the fact that, you know, his name, you know what I'm saying? Chill and Screw bonded over their love for music. Chill would regularly go over to Screw's place to hang out and practice. They'd spend hours hunched over their turntables, going over the fundamentals of DJing. But they weren't always at the crib, because even with Screw's expanding record collection, the boys would still get hit with the urge to find new shit to spin. Back then, neither of them had a car, so they'd hop on buses and roll through Houston, visiting record stores. What we call record hunting was going to like different record stores in different areas, catching a bus or whatever we had to do to go pick up records. And you know what's so crazy? So back then, we didn't even know what the records sound like. We just, we just took on took what the person said it sound like and we said, oh man, we're gonna try this right here. And we just tried records. We was buying records and 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 didn't know what they <laughs> sound like. <laughs> I know this sounds crazy, right? But we just get them and take them home and, and try them out. The records they didn't like, they'd get the screw treatment. But the one screw truly fucked with, they were like treasures to him. He'd keep them in perfect condition all stored neatly in milk crates. Shoot, it was prized possessions back then. Um, and the records, you know what I'm saying? The records. I, he would um, buy records before he would buy food. He loved it that much. Yeah, yeah, he would buy records before he, before he buy anything, he will buy records. But there was a problem. Screw had the records, but back then, he didn't have anywhere to play them. Ever since seeing Breakin' as a kid, he dreamed of rocking a crowd. But most of the time when he spun records, he was home, alone in his bedroom. That's where Chill came in. Back in the late 80s, Chill had started working at a local radio station, and he'd use his connections to book gigs, DJing at neighborhood parties. Things were going okay for Chill, but he figured they might go even better if he and Screw joined forces. Because like, I was like, I needed him because he had more records than me. But I had the speakers. I had bigger speakers than him. So we like we kind of collaborated on some house parties. You know, they kind of created a bond. And it was one of Screw turntables and one of Chill turntables. So Screw had the amp and Chill had the mixer. They put the speaker with that speaker, put two pieces of almost together, and you got a hole. This is Quentin Brown. That's me. But everyone just calls him Wood. He went to some of the early parties that Screw and Chill played together. I met DJ Screw on the southeast side, Scarsdale. He was a normal house party DJ. When he reflects on those early days, Chill told me that nothing came easy to him and Screw. Truth be told, when they were just starting out, they were kind of whack. We made some flyers and went to the park and started plastering our flyers, you know, just to show that, hey, we can, we can, we can draw people to a club. And we didn't do good, but we tried it. <laughs> <laughs> but they weren't deterred. Chill and Screw kept at it, kept handing out flyers, kept practicing, buying more records they'd never heard, playing more shows. Screw even dropped out of high school so that he could stay focused and dedicate more time to music. And he expected Chill to match that dedication. 
he he knew what he wanted to do. He knew he, he knew he wanted to play music. He wanted he wanted to be in the music industry. Like no, no hands down. He didn't have no dog. He had no nothing extra that um took him away from music. No dogs and no horses either. I had got me a, I had bought me a horse one time. I know this sound crazy. So, An actual horse? Yeah, I had a horse. <laughs> so <laughs> he, he's like, he's like, man, where you taking me? And I bought me a horse. He's like, huh? And I. T- <laughs> So he he went he went with me to, to to see this horse man. He said, "Man, you crazy!" I said, "Man, I always wanted me a horse." And uh, he said, "Man, get rid of the horse." So I got rid of the horse. Yeah, he knew that was going to take my focus off what I need to be doing. With the horse out of the picture, things started to come together for Screw and Chill. They started to get more work, and they started to play bigger crowds. As we went for kept going farther and farther, we we came to a point where we were drawn to a club. When Screw first came to Houston, he was a nobody. And to be real, he was still a nobody, but at least now he was getting regular gigs and starting to make some bread. It was time for the country boy to get a makeover. Because if he wanted to be a successful DJ, he was going to have to look the part. According to Chill and Wood, Screw started dressing to impress. If he had a big show he'd go to the local flea market and pick out a new brightly patterned silk shirt. And there were accessories, too. Like he had a gold tooth, one gold tooth from the damn uh, flea market, a cap. To top it off, he also started spending more time and more money at the barbershop. He kept a, um, he kept a flat top, you know what I'm saying? His, his flat top wasn't a regular flat top. It had little levels, you know what I'm saying? He had a flat top. <laughs> he had a flat top. He had the flat top with the with the with the with the Big Daddy Kane part in it and everything, man. The just his image of him, who he was back in the day, was that flat top. <laughs> when he walked in the room, the first thing people noticed might have been his hair. But as soon as he started DJing, people forgot about that. All of those hours he dedicated to learning the fundamentals of DJing on his bedroom floor were starting to pay off. Because even back in the early days, it was clear. Screw was special. He was a hell of a scratcher, a hell of a mixer. He mixed three, four songs. The average dude would DJ, he had two turntables, and he mixed these songs. Screw would have a tape playing, a tape, a tape playing at the bottom, another tape playing out of his task cam, the one that he can screw down. He could just turn it off and screw that one down. And then he had two turntables. Man, it's four beats playing, and how can he get the hi-hat and the snare <laughs> and everything to hit on time? But you can hear it. It'll be, you can hear the Mantronics. And he had other shit. You, be like, you can hear it. So you be like, man, you can hear it. So the whole vibe, the whole everybody's bob is, you bobbing three of your favorite songs, and you that bob is different. If I play one of your favorite songs, you're going, yeah, man, that's my shit. I'm playing three of your favorite songs, and you can hear every last one of them. Man. <laughs> By the time he turned 20, Screw was starting to make some cash. But back in the early 90s, superstar DJ was not a common profession. And so Screw's dad took care of all of the bills. And that could only last but so long. One way for Screw to make a little extra cash back in the day was to sell mixtapes. DJs would make mixes and sell their cassette tapes. 
Sometimes they'd sell them direct to their friends. Or they'd sell them at local record stores, the car wash spot, anywhere that people had cash. Turns out that one of Screw's customers was another future legend of the Houston hip-hop scene. Uh, my name is Bun B. I'm a recording artist, uh, formerly from the group UGK, uh, presently as a solo artist. Back in the early 90s, before Bun B became an underground king of hip-hop, he was working at a record store. He recalls a young Screw on his mixtape grind. He was a very unassuming guy, right? Screw was never like a very aggressive, by nature type of guy. Very calm, um, you know, like I said, very unassuming. You know, I'm a DJ, I got these mixtapes. Uh, can y'all sell some for me? Like, yeah, leave, leave us a couple. Leave us your number. It would have been a beeper number back then, or a house number. And um, if we sell them, we'll let you know. Or you can come back through and see if they're moving. But again, this isn't DJ Screw as you know him, right? This isn't even slowed down music. So he's not even in that space at this time. He's just a DJ like any other DJ in the city. And that was his big problem. He was just like any DJ in the city. There were hundreds like him. Sure, he had those magic hands and could rock a turntable. But that wasn't enough. DJ Screw wasn't going to become a Houston legend by following everyone else. He needed something to set himself apart, to put his name on the map. And that innovation came, according to many, entirely by accident. One day in the early 90s, Screw's hanging out with a couple of buddies. They're drinking, smoking weed, listening to music. So Screw, he's fucking around on his turntable. And according to legend, he accidentally hits the pitch button and slows the record down. One of his boys is like, yo, that's kind of cool. And bam, Screw had found his sound the style that would become known as Chopped and Screwed was born. But here's the thing about origin stories. Oftentimes, they're total bullshit. Yeah, I mean, it, it, is, it still is myth and lore <laughs> because there's so, you, what, what you're going to run into is that you have to kind of average out lots and lots of very different stories. And you're going to experience that in the, in the process of, of, of working on this podcast. This is Lance Scott Walker. Lance has written extensively about the Houston hip-hop scene, and he's writing a book about Screw. He told me that when it comes to Screw, it's hard to separate the legends from the facts. But that's part of what makes Screw so compelling. There are lots and lots of different perspectives, and lots and lots of people are going to tell you that they gave Screw his first turntable. And lots and lots of people are going to tell you that, that, you know, I had one guy tell me I was the first one to plug the microphone in. It's like, you know, it's like, wow, man, I, I've been searching for you. I've been searching. I've been looking for you this whole time, you know. So, you know, you're going to run into that. So there's, there, it, there, that's, but I think that's the really fascinating thing about Screw is there's so much mythology surrounding him. And there's some stuff that it's really, really difficult to get a, uh, a really, f- you know, perfect answer on. Well, first time, first time I heard him slow some down, uh, in my mom's house, my sister had this little uh, record player. This is Big Bub. She's DJ Screw's cousin and was one of the people he was closest to. Here's how he remembers Screw first starting to slow music down. You know, you could change the speed on it, and it had a neutral on it. 
Like, you could play records backwards and all that. And you remember Shorty Mac, his best friend from back in Smithville? This is how he first recalls hearing Screw slowing it down. Honestly, he came down here on the holidays one day. We was in, we was in, in my room, so he t- put a record on. And it was, it was a, a record at 45. I was still in high school. And he turned the pitch down to 33. He put it on a neutral speed and kind of played it with the hand and played it a little slower and, you know. And he asked me, what does this sound like? And I said, sounds slow. We was jamming to it, you know, and that was the first time I heard him slow something down, you know. It happened by experiment. That's the first time I heard him. I don't know somebody else's credibility maybe, but yeah. Yeah, some of the stories we heard was that, like, you know, he had had this, this pitch button and it sort of bumped into it by accident. And, and that was what... Uh, let him have this like kind of aha moment like oh shit like damn this is what's changing everything <laughs> man you subject to all type of things man <laughs> you know but i'm telling you from what i know what i know not nothing i heard mm-hmm. that's actual facts bloodline you know i hope i answered your question right either way right around 1993 dj screw first started to slow down music and he gets his first customer when one of his friends is like, yo, I like that. Think you can make me a tape with all slowed down music? I'll pay you. Initially, Screw thought he was tripping. But then more people started asking for tapes. $10 a pop. And these tapes slid into jam boxes and car stereos. And for the first time, these slow, boozy, psychedelic beats are heard the sound waves erupt through the humid Houston air. And more and more people stop and say, what is that? And where do I get it? More tapes come, then more, then more. Dubs, then dubs of dubs. And from this first single screw tape, a legion of gray Maxell cassette tapes spread out across the city. DJ Screw was on his way. I got to mention what he mm. always would say. He would always say that I'm going to screw up the world. And what do you mean by that? Man, <laughs> like, I guess his vision was already there to where people are going to, you know, recognize who he is and what he does. He said that shit all the time. Like, no, I'm going to screw the world, huh? It wasn't like, you know, a braggadocious, like, you know, I'm going to screw the world, huh? Like, nigga, you know I'm going to do it. Next time on Mogul, DJ Screw starts screwing up the world. I mean, I've seen people getting ready to get married and postpone their wedding to go do a screw tape. Oh, yeah. It's that important. It's like Christmas. You know, you ever been, you remember being a little kid waiting on Santa Claus the next morning? That's how it was when Screw called. Ooh, I'm going to do my tape. Vogel is a production of Spotify and Gimlet Media. This episode was produced by Matthew Nelson. Mogul is made by these amazing people. Our producers, Gabby Bulgarelli and Aaliyah Yates. Our supervising producer, Matthew Nelson. And our editors, Brendan Klinkenberg, Lynn Levy, and Chris Morrow. 
Sound design and mixing by Haley Shaw. Music supervision by Matthew Bowl and Liz Fulton. This episode was scored by Rob Quest, Nana Quibena, and KPR. Theme music and additional scoring by So Wiley. Fact-checking by Stephanie Abramson. Huge shout-outs to everyone else who helped us bring you the show. Elise Harvin, Jesse Hart, Lisa Nussbaum, Talia Rockman, Kimu Elolia, Rachel Strom, Caitlin Kenny, Nandy Mason, Dominique L. Boss-Turner, Rocky Rocket, Matt Zanzala, and Randy Hager. Follow us on Twitter for all the latest news and a behind-the-scenes look at the making of the show. Our handle is at Mogul. My name is Brandon Jenkins, and I'll see you next episode.